One o'clock on the East Coast. That's Guy Adami. And that good-looking man there is Danny Moses. You know him from the big short. I mean, he is legendary in our business. Dan Nathan taking a well-deserved day off. This is Market Call. Today's Market Call, Danny, brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. I'm powered by the fact that two of us are together here. We're both a bit exercised. You know, I see people in the comments section. They started like 20 minutes ago. I don't even um, look at that. basting us. Don't. You, want, you don't want to look at it. It's right, just going to infuriate you. Okay. I'm just telling you now. Perfect. Um, but here we are. I mean, it's since last we talked. Listen, you know, last time, last podcast we did um, last Thursday, the market was on its ass. The S&P 500 was basically testing that like 4370 level-ish. And here we are today, you know, 125, 130 points, 140 S&P handles higher. It's quite remarkable. And before we get to our first slide, how are you, Danny Moses? I'm good, buddy. How are you doing? I'm okay. I mean, well, I'm okay. Yankees suck. They put Harrison Bader on waivers. He didn't even know it. He winds up playing the game last night. Like everything is ass backwards right now. The Mets completely suck. And I don't know if Vinny and, and Porter are watching, but man, oh man, as shitty as it is to be a Yankee fan this year, it's even worse to be a Met fan. But otherwise, everything is good. I love my Giants. You're coming around to that. I know. We're going to get in a pool where you have to, you can short one team and then you buy a bunch of teams, you add them up, but blah, blah, blah. You yep. did well in that last year. Yep. I'm, in the, I'm looking forward gonna... to it. Listen, normally Yankee fans don't quickly shift to the football season because you're still playing normally about six weeks into the football season. Yes. That's not going to happen. The Met fans always have to, most of the time, have to deal with this. And it's the Mets, Jets, and it's Yankees, Giants. So pick your poison. But baseball season's over for, for the city of New York. So brutal. It, right. It's absolutely brutal. But listen, you expect at some point this had to happen. We've enjoyed, as Yankee fans, we've enjoyed almost 30 years of uninterrupted greatness so you would do for a break anyway here we are um and we'll talk about the market but you know as i said i said it on the show fast money last night i said it yesterday the market is interpreting bad news or soft data as being good for the market and if you look at our first slide i mean this speaks volumes i mean things are clearly slowing down and the markets and the markets interpreting that is the feds out of the way and i listen I totally get it. I understand that thought process. Of course, the problem is the Fed isn't out of the way. They've already done their work. So whether they move again or not, I don't even know if it matters. Am I looking at that incorrectly, Danny Moses? Yeah, I mean, I don't think bad news is good news here. And we're going to get to the Fed fund futures in a minute. But between worsening consumer confidence, which, mm -hmm. by the way, had higher inflation in it, you know, backwards looking GDP doesn't matter as much. But, you know, we cut the growth from 24 to 2.1% obviously the jolts data which got people excited that that's what everybody yeah insane and the adp data which showed that that you know jobs are slowing in terms of, of hiring so none of that's really good and what's really interesting about the fed fund futures is yeah we've dropped from basically a 20 percent chance to a 10 percent chance of a raise in september but if you look and we'll look at that in a moment but if you look beyond september if you look to the next meeting which begins on halloween and they come out on the first of november obviously with that decision those it, that possibility of an increase overall between the two meetings has not changed at all. Mm -hmm. It's actually gone slightly higher. So the Fed's not going to be saving us. And I like to think about it, Guy, as we wind down the Saratoga meet is the ultimate trifecta that's gone on, right? What oh, is the give, trifecta? It to, give it to me. 
Fed thought inflation was transitory, right? Bullshit. Check that. By the way, so, so just stop that for one second, yeah. okay? Yeah. It's it's amazing because I know you said it and I know I said it, and we're not Fed officials. We're not trained as bankers, central bankers, but it was as clear as your freaking hand in front of your face that it wasn't going to be transitory. And by the way, the inflation they were begging for for years was right there all along. Anyway, please continue. Sorry. The second piece was they raised, you know, 75 bips, 75. Like they, I think they went too fast, right? So that's my second. So you compounded the problem by transitory turned into raising too much. And the, the last horse that's going to come in is they're going to be slow to cut rates, which I think they've made three big mistakes here. And so people that believe that this brings forward fat rate cuts or what that even mean to this point is a reason to buy the market. Cause let's be clear. That's all the market's really trading on right now is the expectations, but to go from a 15% chance to hike to a 10, to me, there was no chance for another hike potentially. I think they're done anyway, but point being is that I think it's the, it's summer week right before labor day. There's not a ton of liquidity in the market. We've rallied, as you said, three and a half percent basically from the lows on Friday to where we sit today. And it's not going to take much to wipe all of that out, in my opinion, in a day or two, just when the sentiment shifts or people really pay attention to what's going on in the markets, which I know we're going to get to here. And in, in people, uh, Danny, I know you know this, and it's important for us to address it, but people say you guys are dug in, you're dogmatic, you, know, you, you have one view and you're looking for all the negatives to sort of reinforce your belief system and blah, blah, blah. And I get it. The problem, of course, is that everything we're talking about is, is accurate. It's real. It's right there. The fact that the market... Um, for whatever reason, is discounting it. Yes, it's absolutely frustrating. And again, it brings me back to when I watched The Big Short for the first time and I watched that scene, you know, it was about a scene and a half where things were moving your way in terms of your thought process and all the things in terms of the data were moving your way. And then you look at your positions and they were going against you. And that's extraordinarily frustrating because what you saw and what you saw, thought was going to happen was actually happening. But for whatever reason, the market decided it didn't want to look at it, of course, until it did. And I think, Danny Moses, that we're in that same situation where you see something. I think I see the same thing. The market is telling a completely different story. It's extraordinarily frustrating. You're on top of the mountain trying to scream at people, hey, look at these things. They're going to be important. But, you know, with each passing day that the market doesn't care, I think more and more people sort of I don't want to say they tune us out, but they say these guys are just screaming at, at windmills. Nothing matters until the liquidity starts to pull itself out of the market. So as far as coming into 2023, just to rehash that for a minute, people that call for the recession, oh, you're wrong. There was no recession that was going to come. I think that we're literally here now. Now the stuff's in motion. And when I say liquidity coming out, I'm talking about credit lines being pulled. Right. Mid-sized banks pulling out. It's happening right now. If you look, I, I just don't know how much the consumers got left in the tank to keep this kind of spending going. It's not cataclysmic by any stretch, except I think it's going to shock people how quickly things may slow. One of the bullish camps is that you've drawn down inventory. You're going to have to replenish it because new orders are going to come in. We're not seeing any indication that that's going to happen. I'm not saying mm -hmm. it's going off of a cliff, but these are the things that are going to start happening. And we'll get into it with some of these charts here. And I want to talk more about this because in real time, things are happening here. But that's been the biggest difference to me is that how and how people position themselves. And now we're going to quickly rotate to 2024 earnings. Right. So 2023, even if they're bad for the rest of the year, wherever the S&P earnings end up being between 215 and 223, whatever the number is, it's all going to be about 2024. So people that want to be bullish and that's fine. We're going to say 24 is going to be the trough because mm -hmm. we're, we're already going to have soft landing. And that number is 240 to 250. 
on a trough multiple, you'll pay 18 to 19 times on the market on the S&P. If that you think that's a trough, the one thing that people just are underestimating is the lag effect. Oh, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Well, the lag effect is now here on rates and is slowing things down dramatically. And if guy, if people believe that the Fed will react that quickly, I don't think they can because the stuff that's still inflationary is going to remain inflationary mm -hmm. here. We've certainly seen the highs in inflation. Don't get me wrong, but you can't tell me. I mean, so anyway, there's a lot that goes into that financial products and so forth that I see behind the scenes that, you know, people may not want to look at. But once you see the end of the world guy, it's hard to. It, it's, so. No, I agree with that. And listen, in terms of inflation, we're going to look Let's we'll pull up an S&P chart while we chat, because, you know, obviously, and, and I'll mention this again, the S&P traded down. So we can say that uptrend line is sort of fugazi. It's fine. But what the S&P effectively did, and if we can do real time a little bit longer, you can look back and see. You know, last August, we traded up to 4350 ish sold off. We got through it this year. We obviously traded a little bit north of 4600 We came back. We tested 4350 We bounced. We tested it again. And now we're seemingly in this bounce. So this uptrend is intact. I'm bringing this up just to sort of show you, you know, where we were again and where we potentially could go. So here we are with the S&P 500. But let's just talk about inflation real quick and and that 9.1 percent reading i guess last june i think we said it at the time that's going to be the high print for sure and it turned out to be correct but you know now as you get to these fall months the comps with which inflation is measured i don't want to say it gets easier because that's not the right term but it's a it's a growth thing so it's a rate of growth and i think you're going to see how sticky inflation is going to be and i think we might have troughed with the last uh, inflation report or this coming up one doesn't matter. My point is, I think thing, the trajectories will start to go back up, which I don't think the market's going to be too favorable about. I agree. Um, we saw that a little bit in the UK today, I think, with some of the data right. that came out, right? And things are slowing over there. Germany's already in a recession. So that's stagflationary over there, what's happening. And I'm, I fear that that may end up happening here. I hope I'm wrong. I hope the consumer is stronger. I just think they're out of bullet, so to speak, in terms of uh, credit availability. And let me just give you a little anecdote here on what's happening. I'll give you Key Bank as an example. Really mm -hmm. good friend of mine, owns an industrial clothing company, 200 million in revenues, 35 million EBITDA, has a line of credit with Key. So these lines of credit that are out there are based on SOFR, what used to be LIBOR, right? Secured overnight financing rate is basically what's used. And it's around 5.3%, right? It floats right where Fed funds is. Well, Key Bank jacked up his rate literally to... So for plus, call it 375, somewhere between three, right? Which puts you, obviously, you're getting up to 9% at that point, right? And he would normally do is he would tell Key, hey, listen, you're not jacking me up. I've been declining yours for 25 years. Like we have no, this time they said we have no choice. Yeah. He took his business and he went to JP Morgan with it. There was so for plus two to two and a half percent. For people that don't understand, like he, he's got to run a business, right? If he had to pay that extra rate, he's got to start laying people off potentially. Cost of capital is going up, but credit availability, it's happening in real time. So if KeyBank, you see this news from the FDIC saying, oh, you got to raise more debt to shore up your balance sheet and all this stuff, and you have three years to do it. Also, that has an impact on how they pay their equity dividends, how, what they're going to pay, you know, what their bonds are going to trade at. And so what do they have to do? They have to cut back lending. So that puts these small companies, small and mid-sized businesses, and that's not a small company, by the way, 200 million in revenue with hundreds of employees into these decisions. And that's what's happening right now. So we talked about, oh, nothing happened from CFB. We injected 500 billion into the market. And guy, if we can bring up the the chart on um, Fed holdings of U.S. 
treasuries. They're, they, they're balance sheet, basically, if we can bring that up. I know we made I think little... we have the slide, so we can bring we it up slide. for sure. So that's the foreign holders of U.S. treasuries, which I want to get to, obviously. And, and oh, I thought that's what you wanted. I apologize. but No, no, I, it's okay. Yeah. So basically, um, if, you look, if you look at the holdings of what we have, I'm saying quantitative tightening, there it is, has been happening right in real time. And I give them credit. We're down to we're down to 8.1 trillion. Let it go. We are competing in the market right now. So people see these moves in 10-year yields and yields in general. We're competing with the Fed, right, in terms of we're competing treasury issuing. And we're competing with the previous chart you just showed, Japan and China, which I believe when we see the tick data come out on September 18th, by the way, it's a big lag effect. We'll see July. I think that was the culprit or one of the culprits that was going to be there. So you look at the trend from last year, 1.2 trillion is what Japan owned. They're down to 1.1. China was 938 down to 835. These are kind of big. So who is who is the buyer, I guess, is what I'm saying, guy. And so we are competing again. So explains why we've had these a lot of volatility, I think, in treasuries here. So. Right. And I'm surprised. You know, it's it's interesting. And we'll have this conversation. So and I'm not again, when I say things, I'm in no way suggesting I'm right. You know, this is just opinions that we put forth. And I understand the market does strange things. I'm of the belief that longer term yields, 10 year yields specifically, are going higher. Now, that that looked like genius a week or so ago when 10-year yields were 435. It's looking a little lame right now as we've basically come back about 20, 25 basis points-ish over the course of a few trading sessions. Again, the moves are staggering. I think yields are going higher, not because the economy is magically getting better. No, it's because the market, Danny, is going to demand a higher yield to buy this debt. And again, you mentioned it, you know, the, the Fed's not going to monetize this debt. Japanese appear to be selling it. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, there's a buyer that's out there, but that buyer is going to demand higher rates, which is not, in my opinion, not particularly good. And the fact that you brought up small and medium business, I think small and medium business employ north of 65% of the people in this country, number one. The consumer is 72% or so of our economy. So again, if these small and medium-sized businesses are going to be hamstrung, there's going to be there's going to be a knock-on, an ancillary effect on the consumer, and the consumer is going to slow down almost by definition. Am I looking that correctly? Yeah, I mean, one of the factors of GDP growth is debt, and debt was basically free, for, you know, for years, for 13 years almost. And so companies that were running normal course businesses with lines of credit, like I just mentioned, Right. They were probably paying three to four percent or paying eight to nine percent right now on what's out there. And that's just going to cause a problem. And so it will cause a slowdown. And I'm a big believer that I think over time, tenure yields will come in a lot for the wrong reasons. The wrong reasons being flight to quote safety, because at the end of the day, guy, if this thing plays out in a negative way, the Fed will have no choice but to stop the quantitative tightening. Right. And the flight and the risk flight will come out of equities, potentially or other assets into our bonds. I do believe that that will happen over time. So you're right in the near term. I mean, these are massive fluctuations in I mean, 30, massive basis, 40 basis point moves. I don't think there's a ton of liquidity in what should be the most liquid market in the world. But I wouldn't read too much into it over time. So, it, so and, this is this is by, by the way, it's, I want to pull this up. And this is from Adversarius, which, you know, I don't know. So he's he or she says lol. And by the way, anytime you start or end something with lol, I mean, seriously, reconsider everything you're doing in life. But okay, lol, the market isn't going to demand a higher yield on US debt if and when the economy goes to crap like you predict. You can't have it both ways. I don't really understand what that means. I mean, if if our economy's not doing well, people will demand a higher yield. I mean, if I mean that's when things are going great. 
you can give people a lower yield because you're the top of the shit pile. But when it starts to turn around, you're going to have to pay people a higher yield to buy your debt. Am I looking? Am I, I mean, my did I well, not go to economics that day? No, you're good at economics. But if that's a reality that our yields are moving higher because our credit worthiness, then you can take the equity market and you can took it. To, you can literally sell everything because that's a big problem. I don't want to even think that way. I don't believe that that's ever going to happen. Like I said, I think we'll do what we need to do to make. So the point of that comment is, I think what I just said is that people would fly into the treasury market because if you can't own treasuries, yeah, you certainly cannot own equities. So in my opinion, so. I agree. Let's take a look at the NASDAQ chart because it's incredible. So NVIDIA reports, I was sitting on the desk of Fast Money when NVIDIA reported. It traded up to, I, I want to say, 516. I think I saw like a 516 print-ish. You know, we had a conversation about NVIDIA on the desk. The next day it opened, I think, in the 490s. Traded all the way back down. Now it's back on its horse. And it's not coincidental that the, that the NASDAQ 100 chart looks very similar. Again, this uptrend that's been in place since the beginning of this year is still in place. The 200-day moving average, I think that's the 200-day, I apologize if I'm if I'm wrong, is right around 13,200. Again, you know, we, we're trading standard deviations about something that's historically mean reverting, and we haven't had that mean reversion effectively since March. So, you know, you're working on seven, eight months now where you really haven't taken a look at this. I think it's exhausting itself. You know, I, I think, again, this this thought to brace into these high valuation, high growth names on the back of lower yields is just something doesn't register with me. What are your thoughts on this? Because I'm sure they're going to be similar to mine. Yeah, there's definitely programs out there that are set quant funds that are set when 10-year yields drop to buy these stocks. I get it. Okay. But if you look at what HP said and what that stock's doing, Hewlett Packard, you look at box. So, so enterprise spending is basically slowing. So mm -hmm. if you want to believe in the AI theme, which is it's real, it's obviously real. We don't know. It's going to be very, very hard to quantify right now what it's going to mean as far as long-term revenue and earnings. You are going to take money out of kind of the enterprise names like the Hewlett Packard and the box and throw them into kind of something that you know has growth, something that's been beating earnings. So I understand not taking the money out of the market potentially and throwing it into these other names which have growth. So I get it. I get it. So that I think is what's happening here is guys in allocation. We're also at the end of a month. We're also in a, a week that traditionally has been very slow and boring um, on, on Wall Street the week before Labor Day. So I would take all those things kind of into account as I look at that. So I'm throwing you a bit of a curveball here. And we did a podcast a few weeks ago. We called it uh, Turning Japanese and something you had been focused on for a while. You know, I was looking at it as well. Again, the it's I, I'm sure there are a lot of people that say you two think exactly alike and better for better or for worse. We do. But, you know, we look at things that I think a lot of people don't look at them. That's not casting aspersions. We just. You know, I just think we look at the world a little differently. But for many years, the Japanese were able to keep things under control with the whole yield curve control. And they were they were able to sort of slay that dragon. Well, the market's starting to call bullshit on them in a meaningful way, I think. And you can see it in terms of their currency. The yen seemingly weakens against the dollar every single day. By the way, I think that trend will continue. Uh, yields are moving higher there. They have a problem. And. You know, when they're the largest holder of our treasuries, which they are, we can go back and look at that previous slide. They got to start doing something. They got to start shuffling some deck chairs around. And I got to tell you something. They can push all the buttons they want. There's a problem here, in my opinion, and it comes in the form of what's going on in Japan. Am I off base with that? No. If you think our debt to GDP is high, go look at Japan. It's obviously right. much higher, right? They have a bigger problem. And if their cost 
to uh, finance that debt moves meaningful higher. That's even obviously worse for them. You talked about being hard for us. It's way worse for them. And as their yields move higher, our treasuries become less attractive. So there's two reasons. You would repatriate back to invest, you know, JGBs, right, at the same time. But you also, Bank of Japan, need to go in at some point and defend the currency, right? So you're going to defend, your, we, I think, 150 is kind of the earmarked number. Yeah, I agree with that, by the level. way. So everyone's kind of set up at that level and waiting, and we've been flirting around it. We got above 147, back to 145, 147, 145. And the yield curve control, as you mentioned, they were going to let it go to 1% on their 10-year. But the minute they got to 60 basis points, they said, ah, we'll buy a little, 65, we'll buy a little. So I think they're the buyer out there. Well, who's buying that, right? It's it's probably them. And how are they funding it? Probably through us. And so, again, they'll hold treasuries. I don't think that's going to be, you know, it's $1.1 trillion right now, right? Um, the public owns most of treasuries. The Fed owns it. And then you have these foreign countries that own it. But it's just something to watch. And so the math starts to not work, right? The same way it worked on the yen carry trade for years, right? Uh, it can unwind rather quickly. And it's something I'm definitely watching. And I watched at 10 a.m. yesterday when supposedly bad news became good news. Look at the chart of the intraday on the dollar yen right then. It went from 146.50 to like 145.50, you know, in a straight mm -hmm. line. So obviously there's a lot into that. The dollar was weakening and so forth. So it's something to definitely keep an eye on, guy. This is not going away, this issue here. You know, it's interesting. So I'm reading the comments. That's why my eyes keep going back and forth. So I apologize. But this is from Wiley Zoo. If the market doesn't care about Japan, why should we? So put that up for a second, okay? Because this is really interesting. And this is the way a lot of people think. And, and Danny, you know, when you guys were looking at the housing market, 06, 07, 08, you could have made the same argument. The market doesn't care about the housing market. Why should we? And that was true for a long time until, to your point, it wasn't true. Then everybody cared about it. So that line of thinking, and, and I'm not trying to be mean-spirited here, but it's sort of like things work until they don't. Yeah, the market doesn't give a shit about a lot of things until it does. So, you know, we're bringing it up. And you can say, why are you guys bringing up these esoteric things to try to support your belief system? Because as you have learned in your life, and I've sort of learned in mine, Nothing matters until it does. And when it does, then it matters in a meaningful way. So that mindset, listen, it works when you're long stocks and stocks go up every day and everybody feels great and nothing matters. But you just got to be aware. If, if, you know, if that comment was, listen, I understand that there, there are existential risks out there, but I'm going to stay long the market because I think I can sort of, I can stay with it longer than, you know, it'll take for the market to start to care about things. That's fine. But if you just sort of discount it out of hand, that's not fine, Danny Moses. Did anyone care about the British pound versus Russian ruble in 1998 uh, with long-term capital had a trade on? that No one cared. You had volatility around those currencies. You knew someone was blowing up. It turns out it was long-term capital, right? That was a big issue back then. This is why you need to pay attention. And let me take it one step further, Guy. And I've talked about this on, on our podcast, right? So if you're a, a, a credit fund, if you're a levered equity fund, I won't name them all out there, but you're multi-strat and you're beta neutral and you're levered, you know, four to five times, you're, you're borrowing from the banks themselves, the Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley's. They're watching these underlying positions. If you think about the cost to borrow just in general on equity, right, it basically floats with, with prime. Used to be, you know, when rates were zero, you could put on these books and lever. So there's a lot of leverage in the system. It doesn't take much. And I think that's why we're seeing all the, all this volatility, especially in in other products outside of equities, currencies, 
um, rates and stuff that people should be watching because leverage is now getting dialed down, in my opinion. And when leverage starts to get dialed down and comes out of the system of funds that are most of them are set up to be net long, remember. So when your gross comes down, you're net seller of things. But I'm a big believer we're going to see a lot of news of funds that may be, quote, in trouble. None of these that I've just mentioned, obviously, I'm saying in general, somebody's on the other side of that yen trade. Mm -hmm. Someone's on the other side of this 10-year yield trade. Someone's on. So when you see moves like that, that's why people should care because it can upset the market from areas. Do you think Archegos, anyone knew what that was until mm -hmm. it blew up, you know, with all the leverage in the system? So we just like to point things out. I don't want to have, want it to happen, but I see these things and I can't not talk about it. So the counter to that is, you know, you guys were talking about things Silicon Valley Bank, which was the 16th largest bank in the United States, blew up. And that was probably the most bullish thing that happened to the market. So there'll be people out there that will counter and say, actually, these existential blacks, whatever term you want to use, those are actually market friendly, market positive. And quite frankly, as irrational, as counterintuitive as it sounds, what saved the market in the spring, in my opinion, was Silicon Valley Bank blowing up and then subsequently First Republic and some of the others. Thoughts about that? Well, I think it's, again, Pavlov, right? The Fed will be there. Treasury will be there if things really do blow up and so forth. And and so, you know, again, why wouldn't you think that way? So that's the bullish comment, Guy. Would that be, I'm just going to, I'm not going to worry about anything. If something blows up, the government's going to take care of it and things are going to be fine. So, Again, I think we're due for a lot of volatility. I think this recent bounce here, I think, is short-lived. It is what it is. I'm not going to change. And you want to go back to what we saw in 2005 and six and seven leading up to. It was pretty much in motion in 2005. Things didn't blow up for two years. What has to happen? The securitization market has to basically seize up, right, so to speak. So money flows kind of stop. That's not happening here right now. But what is happening, I just mentioned with Key Bank and fixed, fixed income investors are discerning. Right there. Like I said, it's, it's not just about stock picking, it's bond picking in the credit markets of who they're going to fund and who they're not. And that is what we're seeing right now in real time. And so I see a name like Upstart guy, UPST, which was down to 12. It got up. You know, this was the one in the $300, $400 stock that the guy was on CNBC, didn't even know what he owned, an AI platform for lending and all this stuff. Go back and read their last quarter on, on what just happened for people that, you know, if they're in this name long or short. They are portfolioing the loans now because they cannot sell these loans at the price that makes it profitable for them. That's all you need to know, right? It's a they they are warehousing the loans themselves on their right. And this when is exactly so that's I mean, that's this, important I mean, because exactly they can't what, sell it. Let me finish this because this is exactly what happened in subprime credit. So in two thousand five and six, these subprime originators, New Century, a credit home lender, Saxon. Their lines came from the big banks. What did the big banks do? The big banks wanted to fund them so they could produce these mortgages. They could package them and sell them, right? We saw that backing up in real time, credit lines being pulled, right? So we knew eventually the performance on the CDS and the underlying bonds was going to blow up. But sorry to cut you off, guy. It takes a year, a year and a half. And this is not anything close to that. This is, this is not. It's just not. So I don't want to compare the two, but I'm saying the plumbing and these start to, things start to happen. Pay attention. That's it, guy. Sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. It's, you know, that's not their business, though. You know, they're not in the business, you know, they're not in the holding business. We used to call it, we're in the moving, sure. they're in the storage business. They're in the moving business. And once you change, because the market's forcing them to become a storage business, that's not what they're, that's not what they're set up to do. And it's not just them. You know, when you can't sell your stuff, it means nobody wants to buy it. Putting it on your, putting it on your balance sheet or putting it as part of your portfolio isn't going to solve the problem. It buys you time, maybe, but that's about it. And it's interesting, Danny. 
I'm just reading. Somebody said that guy said crude was going to be up big today. There was a huge draw last night, 11 million barrel draw in crude, which it was really out of nowhere. And I said on fast money last night, crude's going to be up big today. It's, it's not, it's up, I guess a little bit. doesn't mean it's not going up. And, you know, I think you and I both share the thought that crude oil or the energy stocks, there's another run in them. And as I'm sitting here today, you know, the, the OIH is up a percent or so, um, you know, that's pushing up again towards, you know, I think 351 was the recent 52 week high. I think, I don't think people understand the supply demand imbalances going on in the energy market. And I'm not looking for you to sort of wax poetic here, but I think you share the similar thoughts in terms of energy and the components thereof. Yeah. Let me just say for our friends down in Florida, hope everybody's safe and okay. Most importantly, um, second to that is that the reason that, you know, the, when there's a hurricane in the Gulf where all the rigs are right. Same with people, short insurance companies, property insurance into a hurricane. I don't know what the damage this did to those rigs. Probably not a lot. But with that, rig counts have been going down anyway. But I think that was the volatility, I think, in oil guy for the last few days trying to predict where this hurricane was was going to go. That was part of it. So maybe you're not getting the follow through on the upside because hopefully it didn't do as much damage as people thought. So I don't have any comments outside of that on, on that. So. No, listen, I, I totally get it. We're tasked here with, you know, talking about markets and stuff. And by the way, you know, in terms of the draw, I mean, maybe that was, you know, I don't know what it was on the back of, but but we'll see. Just just keep it in mind. Uh, let's take a look quick, quickly, CME Fed tool, because something you brought up, it's just good to see it visually. We have the slide, so at least you can see it. And, you know, this is what Danny was talking about earlier. Again, in my opinion, it's the market, the Fed did their work already. So, you know, we are in the aftermath of what the Fed has already done. So whether they move or not to me doesn't necessarily matter. I'll say this, Danny, again, that if they were to cut rates in the first half of in the first quarter of next year, it's not because something good is happening. It's because something probably broke. Uh, but that's just me. Sort of discern this for the rest of us. Yeah, my point is this chart and then the next one, which is, like I said, the next Fed meeting, which hasn't changed. If anything, it's actually increased the probability of 25 basis points going between the two meetings. And so, you know, hawkish pause, dovish hike, whatever's going to happen next in terms of I don't think anything's going to happen in this September meeting, right? Um, so from a timing perspective, Guy, I mean, we always know that September, October can be can be dangerous, uh, you know, in the markets. And it certainly feels like it's setting up that way. My point on this was if the market's trading on on Fed fund futures and expectations, then look at it holistically. Don't look at just the September meeting. Look at November meeting, because right after that, you got one, you know, six weeks later. And so that's my point is that the near term trading and the market positioning. So the, it, the debt, the bond market's telling you something different. Than how the market. I love react. this. So I'm reading this Finom group said that he was banned from fast money. I, I, you know, first of all, I don't even know who this person is. And, you know, I've never banned anybody from anything. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry you were banned. I mean, it really is amazing. Let's take a look at the dollar. Um, you know, so many things happen on the back of the dollar. You know, I, you know, I think where I stand in gold, I think I know where you stand in gold, but here's the dollar, you know, we're, We've bounced up against it a couple times um, in terms of the, you know, the dollar has bounced is my point. But you're still, I think, in an environment where this dollar could start to sort of fade here in terms of, again, the, this, this construct. We, all, we talked about the strength in the dollar against the yen. Obviously, the dollar has other components as well that, that it trades against. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, look, our economy is slowing now to the extent it appears it might be. Like we said, everything was kind of six-month pushback, then this entire move makes sense. 
And in conjunction with that, that's the leader for everything, right? So dollar yen, dollar euro, dollar sterling, right? Um, Juan, all of it, right? So that's kind of the bellwether. So I think we're probably going to weaken from here, Guy, I think because I think people will be shocked potentially if there's a, if there's a slowdown here. And gold, obviously, is the inverse of that. I'm a big believer. I said I may be bearish on the market. It, but what's going to be good for the stock market interpretation of what's good for the stock market is that the Fed's going to be cutting rates. Well, if the Fed's cutting rates or stopping QT or doing anything, you can't tell me that gold isn't going to be beneficiary of that positioning. So I would rather just own gold and try to trade the dollar and get the benefit of a weaker dollar with gold, if that makes sense, Guy. Um, so that was my thought. I hear. Let's take a look at gold real quick because, you know, it's hanging in there. It's definitely hanging in there. Um, it's, you know, making this next push. We're a little, little bit of a downtrend. The moving averages are working in our favor. So my thought all along has been, you know, as central banks continue to buy gold, effectively what they're doing is they're hedging their own basically ineptitude. And I think that's somewhat accurate. It's clear that they see something going on. The next catalyst for gold, in my opinion, will be when the hedge funds get in because, you know, the meaningful money, or at least the speculative money, is not in right now. Um, so we're looking at this chart. Again, if all the things that I think are going to happen happen, it's going to it's going to find its way into the gold market. So we'll see, Danny. And that's you know, that's how I look at it. You want to give us some closing thoughts? Really? Oh, you want to talk about the regional banks real quick? Sorry about that. Let's bring that chart up as well. Because they obviously bounced. Uh, it's no coincidence that they all sort of bottomed, you know, month, month and a half after Silicon Valley blew up. I think the rally in the regional banks was on the just in terms of lack of bad news. There was going to be this rush to find them in terms of valuation. People can make a you know a meaningful argument for these banks being you know worthy of their trades, worthy of the longs in terms of value. I think there are more shoes to drop. And what you talked about much earlier in this show suggests that there's more pain to come. How do you look at this? Yeah, I gave the anecdote of obviously Key Bank and what's happening. And then the basically the FDIC is now going to require over a three-year period to increase their the debt on these banks' balance sheets by 25%. So it's a bigger buffer. So I think these stocks are utility stocks, right? So they have dividend yield on the equity side, but I'm a buyer of those bonds when they get issued, guy. And some of the yield of maturity on these bonds now are 8 to 9%. I think we can say that those are going to be safe. When the government re requires you to raise debt, God forbid, you know, these companies will obviously get sold off if they have to merge, mm -hmm. you know, do these, marrying these deals together again. But no, I'd rather own the debt of these companies than the equity of these companies, guy. So that's kind of how I look at that thing. And I think these things are just going to be zombies for a long time. Yeah. And listen, we had Sheila, Sheila Bear came on Fast Money a month, month and a half ago. And, and she listen, she knows more than I'll ever know in terms of uh, banks. But she suggested that there was probably and I'm paraphrasing, but it's probably another shoe to drop as well. I think there are a lot of people that are surprised nothing's happened. Again, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen, Danny Moses. But we ran over your gentleman for coming on. Danny filling in incredibly well for Dan Nathan. Dan, we'll be back tomorrow. Danny Moses is the man. Thank you, Danny. I want to Thanks thank Backset Financial Data and Analytics, powered by tomorrow. You're a sexy man, Danny Moses. I just want you to know that. And regardless of the commentary, I appreciate it all from our comment section. Thank you to the audience. We'll see you tomorrow, 1 o'clock Eastern.